Hello, people. Welcome to Techno Social. If you like what we're doing, then please consider liking us on YouTube and on your podcast provider, sharing our content round, and generally telling people about it. And maybe even consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash techno social. So, Greg, thanks for being here with me. Uh, hey, man. Uh, it's great to be here. Interesting conversation last week, and we thought that we'd, uh, we'd come back and try and record something, put something out I of appreciate it. it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it immensely, and I appreciate the invitation. So I'm happy to uh, revisit some of those things and explore what other new things might emerge. Hell, yeah. So as I just said, I think an interesting place to start would be your work in some sense sets out to address a problem or problems within psychology and the scientific establishment as they are. I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about what that problem or problems are. Yeah, man. Uh, so it's actually uh, what I refer to in my professional scholarly writings as the problem of psychology. Uh, that's what I call it. Um, and I didn't realize that there was such a thing until I got into graduate school. Okay. Um, the problem of psychology uh, can be stated as follows. Psychologists do not have consensual definitions uh, about what psychology refers to in the world. Okay. Uh, and that is dramatically different than the sciences beneath us. Okay. And by beneath us, I mean the science is a more basic phenomenon. So for example, biology. Uh, virtually all of the biologists would uh, readily acknowledge that biology is the science of life. And while there may be disagreements about the edges of that concept, like is, is the coronavirus alive and where exactly are things, <clears throat> everyone has a shared understanding that a bacteria cell is alive, that life has certain characteristics, and that the dimension of life is fundamentally different than inanimate matter, and that the biological science is about investigating those uh, living behavioral processes. So that's consensus. And then you go down to chemistry. There's a lot of consensus on what chemistry is and physics, okay? And all the different physical sciences uh, and, the, and the earth sciences have a radically different kind of consensus. Okay. You get to psychology and you realize very quickly that we don't have consensus, um, at least when you know how to look for it. Now, I thought if you go into Psych 101, here's what they'll tell you. They'll say, hey, welcome to psychology. Okay. It's a science. It's the science of behavior and mental process. That's what they'll tell you. Okay. And if you're a naive little undergraduate like I was, oh, that sounds like that makes sense. You can see other people's behavior and then you have your mind inside and then, and then psychology goes off and studies all that. All right. And then they do a little bait and switch. They tell you it's about behavior and uh, mental process, but then they say, actually, what it's really about is a science. Okay. And psychology takes an approach to human behavior and maybe animals, and it's a science. And really what we do is we don't uh, just do folk psychological discussions. We do observation, we do measurement, we do construct validation, and we have determined that these things are 
true. We seek truth through the methods of science. Okay. So that's what I thought psychology was. You know? um, but it turns out that actually, if you simply define the field by the methods of science, that's not adequate. That doesn't tell you, you know, it's biology science. They use the methods of science, but you know, biologists wouldn't go around and say, well, it's not, life's not important. The important thing about biology is it's, it's a science. It's like, no, the important thing is I want to understand life and you can bring the methods of science to understand what life is. And so you can then teach me that life has about DNA and RNA and cell formation and all of that. Well, you get to psychology and then you ask, well, okay, well, what do you mean? I hope your audience is okay, if I care, curse occasionally. Um, what the F do you mean about behavior and mental process? Well, it turns out that there's no consensus about what those terms mean, okay? We don't agree on what behavior. In fact, there's some psychologists, the behavioral psychologists that say psychology is the science of behavior and they just jettison mental process as a non-scientific concept, okay? Completely, so, so, many, so you can find textbooks to this day uh, popular textbooks that occupy about 15% of the textbook um, intro is psychology is the science of behavior. No mental process at all is in the definition. Huh. Are they thinking that mental process is another field of study or that it's just kind of like an epiphenomenon upon? It, uh, good. It's mostly the latter because this will come out of the behavioral tradition. Uh, there's a behavioral tradition, especially in American psychology, much more prominent in American psychology than in European psychology. Um, it happened with John Watson in uh, the early uh, part of the century and then was solidified uh, in radical behavioral uh, philosophy by uh, B.F. Skinner. He's a famous American psychologist. Um, and then the behavioral paradigm really dominated uh, academic American psychology from 1920 to about 1960. Um, so for 40 years, uh, most American psychologists would have said that psychology is the science of behavior and they would have been enormously hostile. Um, to any mentalistic uh, uh, interpretations. And so a mental, what's a mentalistic interpretation? A mentalistic interpretation is the idea that you see overt behavior, but behind the cause of that overt behavior are these things, mental things that are taking place that are mediating and playing a causal role in what you actually see. Okay, so that's, you're, you're a mentalist if you believe that. A behaviorist thinks that that's not sensical. Okay. And the definition and the difference between a behaviorist and a mentalist is one of the core battles that's a battleground about what psychology is. That's just one of the core battleground areas of foundational dispute. Mm. Uh, another core battleground is whether or not, when we talk about the behavior and mental processes, are we talking about behavior and mental processes of what? And generally, then the question is of just people? Or are we talking about the behavior and mental processes of animals? Animals, all animals? Just some animals, like dogs and mammals? Okay. Or does that go down to flies? Okay. So um, there's no consensus in relationship to the behavior, where behavior and mental processes start in the animal world. There's no distinct clarity about whether or not all behaviors are out here in the environment versus in here. Can you have mental and behaviors inside your head? There's no consensus about the relationship between mental process and brain process, exactly, okay? And the different kinds of mental processes. So for example, like 
talking mental process as opposed to perceptual mental process, or even how your brainstem regulates your heart. Is that a mental process? Okay. There's no, no consensus, no clarity. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, since 1920, uh, this has been known by scholars of the discipline. So it, uh, actually a guy by the name of Lev Vygotsky, one of the great psychologists, although he's a Russian psychologist, but he's great, uh, one of the greatest theorists of, of all time, uh, identified this as the crisis in psychology, what I call the problem, he called the crisis. And the crisis is we don't know how to define field scientifically, and we've never solved the crisis, okay? So since 1920, scholars, philosophical, theoretical psychologists have fully agreed that there is no consensus, that there's a qualitative difference in the degree of, dis uh, the degree of lacking of consensus than there is in biology, and Everyone really pays attention knows that the difference, the inability to achieve consensus about core issues is central to whether or not you're really a science. Okay, like a fundamental defining feature of science, arguably the sociological feature, certainly the sociological of knowledge, sociology of knowledge feature is actually experts get together and say, yes, you solved the foundational problem. We have conceptual agreement, there's empirical agreement, there's inter subjective agreement, and now there's a knowledge base. So for example, the periodic table of the elements and chemistry, boom, you know, certainly there's, there's edge people that debate whether that arrangement is perfect, but man, periodic table of the elements, boom, you get an arrangement, you get clarity. You get nothing like that in psychology, okay? So that's the problem, problem of psychology. And I couldn't believe it when it really dawned on me that I'd been, I took 60 credits as an undergraduate psychologist, and then I was in the middle of my master's program. And then I started diving into this. Uh, it really was in my doctoral program that I fully dawned on me. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the midst of a damn science that isn't one. <laughs> and nobody, you know, so we're all running around advertising, you know, a classic psychodynamic way. Like, oh yes, we're a science. We, you know, if a, if a system says that they're a science all the time, you know, may think they doth protest too much. Well, you know, I realized that late in the game, I was, well, at least not, super late because I was in graduate school, but I discovered the problem of psychology. So, so I would tell everybody, yep, uh, the field of psychology uh, is a very complicated field that doesn't have consensus, it's, it doesn't have a set of ideas. And that's a very, to me, that's a very interesting um, feature of our knowledge. Are there any ways in which this lack of consensus can be viewed at the kind of baseline cultural level, as opposed to just when we're talking about the history of psychology or at the academic level? Um, can you say what you mean by baseline culture? Just so I so so like the layperson, for example, thinking mm -hmm. how different approaches to to the human mind and to psyche and behavior, just in like almost common knowledge. Yeah. Well, that's a, well. There's a couple things that happen here uh, in terms of um, what psych. One of the things that's super complicated about what psychology is is it tries to be then a science of human minds, and if it says what a science is, and they're thinking about what their own mind is, what's the relationship between what you tell them it is and what they think it is? Okay, what if they think it's something else? You know, and you said no, this is what it is. Uh, molecules don't talk back to you. Okay, so this is one of the reasons that this is really complicated. Human psychology is really uh, confusing. Chris really believe that basically because of this issue of the human mind is actually constituted by the concepts it believes in, okay, 
then that has an iterative feedback loop, which becomes one of the real unbelievably complicated things about how to define it. Um, and many people say, well, that very feature means that it's going to be a pluralistic entity. So you, you cannot, uh, so the consensus, what happened in the 1950s, basically, especially amongst the human psychologists, is that there was essentially a consensus that there was no way to solve this problem, theoretically. Okay? And, and in part because of some of the issues that you raise, there are actually lots of issues that make it a very hard. There's a reason it's been a problem since, you know, 1910s and never been solved. There are lots of different features that go into it. So that's one of them. Mm. Okay, so then you set out rather boldly, I think, to try and sort out some of these problems. Yeah, and, and the history is, is a little different and, and more grandiose sounding than the actual, uh, the, you know, the, the, the narrative in retrospect is, is more grandiose sounding than the actual unfolding of history, okay? Um, so uh, let me tell you what the actual unfolding of history is in a more a direct way, and that was I was becoming a therapist. Uh, so in the 19, uh, late 1980s, I went on and got my graduate degree in 1993 to 96, my master's degree. And it was during that time that I was trained uh, to become uh, a psychotherapist, was training. And, and it was really fortunate. I had some really great mentors um, who took the practice aspect very seriously, and they honored the various traditions in uh, the, the, of practice. Okay. Uh, and so that I then learned, yes, if you do a modern psychodynamic, that goes back to Freud's kind of thinking, if you do a modern psychodynamic view of psychotherapy, or if you do a cognitive view like Aaron Beck, that's a guy I actually ended up working with, um, or a, uh, a behavioral view or a Carl Rogers, um, humanistic view, for example, those are big major approaches. Um, the sophisticated people, that operate from each of those perspectives have brilliant things to say about how to do the work. And, and the best of the best, it doesn't matter which paradigm, the best of the best are the best people, okay? It's not like there's one paradigm that dominates. And I was seeing that they had all of these cool insights. So I was learning them and then I, and I was like, well, wait a minute, if there are all these cool insights, okay, why don't we have a big map that just tells me where these insights are and then I put them together? Okay, because that's how my mind thinks. I'm a, I'm a meta-systematic, that's what my just intuitive, natural skill and orientation is, is meta-systematic thinking. So I'm just sort of, I'm going to back up and extract the key insights, and now I want to synthesize them. Okay, so that, and that was just a pragmatic need, so that because based on the way I work, if I'm going to come in and be a good psychological doctor, I want to have an understanding of the whole so I can know that I'm doing the best work for you. If I'm going to work with you, I want to know that I'm doing the best. And if I have all these different fragments, I don't feel like I'm secure in my knowledge as a professional. Okay. And that set the stage for me to then I did. Now what I did in the next step that actually gets me to the problem of psychology turns out no one else has done. And that's a really interesting feature. So I backed into what I would call the problem of psychotherapy. And a lot of people have seen this. This is the problem that there's all these different, um, perspectives in the psychotherapy world. Well, I did make the link. I was like, well, wait a minute. Uh, American uh, medicine, uh, medicine in the West, is pretty well organized, okay? And the way it's pretty well organized is because we understand human biology and physiology and anatomy, and we understand how it breaks, okay? And so medical doctors are anchored to that. 
they're anchored to human biology and how it works and how it breaks, okay? So that if you, you know, if you have a broken bone, you go to an orthopedic, if you have a liver problem, you know, you, you understand the endocrine system, you understand all the glands, et cetera, you understand your digestive system, all the different specialties conferred into an overarching system and the application doctoring of it was anchored to that. And that's ultimately how I backed into the problem of psychology. So I'm out here doing the practice stuff and I'm like, yeah, but all these different visions, one of the things about practice is that you have to have your values, okay? So for example, a classic, and is it better to know deep down inside that you're miserable um, and that you have trauma and you feel like a piece of shit? And is it appropriate to be accurate about that? Or is it better just to not be aware of it and think positive, <laughs> okay? Well, different systems will answer that in different ways, okay? Behavioral cognitive views are sort of like, well, just try to do the best you can, think positive and move on. The Freudian view is, well, you're, the best you can do is have insight into it, you're yourself being a piece of shit, so you might as well focus there, and then at least you feel miserable, but at least you have awareness, okay? Uh, I bring that up because there's these different values uh, that, that competed, and that was getting in my meta-synthetic way, because I was like, well, I could see why you'd want insight sometimes, I could see why you want maybe not to, but those are different value judgments. I wanna make an analytic, descriptive, explanatory judgment like a science, and that's what backed me from the problem of psychotherapy into the problem of psychology. And so I asked, well, why isn't there a human psychology that organizes the therapies? So that oriented me. And my first, I started looking, I found what's called evolutionary psychology, was excited about that. And then I realized, no, that's not it. And then I got into it and I was like, oh my God, nobody knows what the science of psychology is. So that's how I ended up the problem. Mm. And so like, one of the things I feel compelled to ask now is given if you're trying to pull together all of the different approaches, for example, to, to therapy and someone comes in feeling like a piece of shit, how do you treat that person? What is the approach? Is it a sense <laughs> of um, trying to work out what their values are and what would be best for them? Like whether they would be better off with that cognitive approach or whether they, they need to go down deep, whether they would get something from that. Great. And well, okay, that's a, that is, <laughs> you, you can come and get your doctor to become a psychological doctor and learn how to answer that if you want. Um, <laughs> the short, let me give you the short answer in relationship to that because it's a, it's a very, very complicated question. Okay. Um, but here's, so what I learned down the road, I didn't learn this instantaneously, but as I developed my whole system, what I actually learned is that each of the systems at the individual psychotherapy level focus on a different system of mental adaptation. I'll say that again. There are different systems of mental adaptation that we have. Adaptation is the process by which you adjust to the environment. Okay, that's and and just like we have different biological systems, all right, we actually have different mental systems of adaptation. Okay, so for example, you have a procedural habit system of adaptation. Okay, meaning when you learn something and you learn how to do it automatically, you download it into your procedural system. Okay. And, and, that, and then that's just basically a contingency system, which means that you have a little program inside your system that operates based on procedure, okay? And that's a fundamentally core learning system that you have. It's called your procedural habit system, okay? Mm -hmm. Also have an online perceptual experiential system, okay? That's, that gives rise to your perceptual uh, point of view in the world, all right? It connects to your drives, what you're seeking to approach and avoid, and it's organized also by your emotion. 
your core intuitive emotional system. E, motion, refers to energizing your motion. And what you have as a primate is an emotion system that when you see something you want, it energizes you with desire to move towards it. When you see something that scares the shit out of you, it energizes you to get defensive and avoid. Okay? So that's your emotion system. All right? Um, you also have a relationship system. That's the way you connect to other people and whether you feel secure and attached, whether you feel known and valued, crucial, or whether you feel about ready to be rejected, about ready to be abandoned, betrayed, utilized, dominated, okay? That's your relationship system and how attached you are. You also have a self-conscious justification system. That's your language and self-reflective system that can look at your feelings and your relationships and your habits and start making judgments and form beliefs and evaluations and interpret and share with other people what the hell you think. Okay, that's your justification system. All right, so if we go through those things, all right, your habit system, it's a procedural system of adaptation, your feeling system, okay, what I call the experiential system, your relationship system, and your justification system. Those systems actually line up with the key insights of the major approaches. Okay, the habit system lines up with the behaviors, all right? So they're gonna say, hey, I just wanna get you regulated right, I wanna control the contingencies, I wanna, if you're trapped in a particular type of ways of responding, I wanna reward you to build skills to do different habits. Okay, that's the habit approach, and I'm the behavioral approach. Works with the habit system mostly. You have what's called the humanistic folks who attend to your core phenomenological valuing system, which is organized by your emotion. All right. And more recently, it's called emotion-focused therapy. So they focus on your processing of your feelings and whether they're adaptive or not. The adaptive system is adaptive. The relational Freudian folks focus on your relationship with your mom, your relationship with your dad, your core relationship with sense and whether you're attached to it or not, and how you defend against those feelings in yourself and relationship to others. Okay? And then the cognitive and existential people in different ways focus on your justification system. Okay, so justification is like, hey, I interpret this, you don't like me anymore, this is going shitty, oh gosh, and then I get to it. Um, so, so my short answer to you is, it really does depend on my values, but the first thing I wanna do, if I'm a good psychological doctor, is I'm going to diagnose your different mental systems and understand how they're interrelated and how you are, where you are across your developmental time and have a model for what's adaptive habits in relations, what's adaptive emotions, what's adaptive relationships, what are adaptive justifications, what are maladaptive, and then assess you where you are on adaptive and maladaptive dimensions of the system. Nice. Okay. I think this is starting to bring us into the territory of, of your way of bringing things together, that system that you've created. I wonder if I could ask you to unpack just a few of the core points of that. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, so I went on this journey uh, of understanding uh, and realized, so in 1996, uh, I've discovered that there's a real problem with psychology, okay? That there is no, um, I have found evolutionary psychology and I fell into a really interesting rabbit hole. So evolutionary psychology is, well, how is uh, the animal and in particular human mind, how has it evolved, okay? Um, and from 1996 to 1997, to make a long story short, I had a really interesting insight about how the human mind split off 
from the animal mind and how it was that we went from primates, okay, uh, like chimps, and we're still our primates, but how we added this whole nother layer of mentation uh, and built culture and built talking capacity, all right? So, and this is what's called the justification systems theory, all right? And what it is, it's, remember I just said you have a justification system, all right? Basically what happened, what I realized, and I, there's a lot of background here, but everyone agrees, everyone that tracks the evolution of language and culture basically says, hey, there's a whole host of different things that happen to us as primates, okay? We're hunter-gatherers, we're engaged in really interesting social uh, connection, we start to mimic each other in really interesting ways, we form complicated social relations, the brain gets bigger, we start using fire, that feeds us in a particular way, so that increases and changes. The landscape changes, we start making tools, and then something really tips in relationship to language. Okay, so then language, everyone, almost everyone agrees um, that although all other animals communicate in sophisticated ways and they have their own variants of language, almost everyone agrees that human language is really unique. Mm. Okay? Unique form of information processing communication, all right? Really is. And, um, and the real question that many people have about what is it that really sparked us is basically they tell the story of, well, somehow language evolved, and then when it did, it creates the evolution of learning through linguistic transmission, which then creates more and more knowledge intergenerationally. So I tell you, and you tell your friends, and your friends end up telling their kids, and all of a sudden you get an accumulation of knowledge. And then that's what the evolution of culture is at some level, human culture, okay? And that's, that's basically right, but it's missing an unbelievably key piece that I discovered, okay? Which makes it much more confusing when you don't have the right piece because there are lots of other things that are going on that make the whole issue really, really not clear. So here's what I discovered. I was in the midst of doing my dissertation on Beck's work on cognitive psychotherapy. Okay? I had done the evolutionary work. I was actually originally trained as a feminist, and I was now getting trained in psychodynamic Freudian theory. Okay? Now, if you know much about Freudian theory, fundamental of Freudian idea is the difference between our self-conscious ego-justifying tendencies, okay, like defending stuff and protecting our and always legitimizing what we do versus and trying to block our shadow, okay, in a defensive way, okay, so Freud's fundamental insight is we have these biopsychological drives, all right, like for sex and aggression, classically, okay, but the society, and especially Freud's society, Victorian Europe says, no, 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 you're not allowed to have those, okay, and then that creates a fundamental tension between what is socially justified and what is biologically driven, and then the ego just rationalizes what you're supposed to do. That's the classic Freudian model, okay? All right, so I'm learning that. I've got the evolutionary stuff. I'm learning the, all of this other stuff, and I'm learning about the evolution of language. Um, and I then get a totally new angle on the evolution of language, because all the evolutionary people are thinking about what a wonderful uh, adaptive solution it is, because I can now convey information to you really cheaply and we can coordinate our behavior, and it gives me lots of different kinds of cognitive tools, okay? So it's beautiful that way. So it's, it, the question isn't whether or not it's adaptive, the question is just how do you get it? Because once it's operative, it's clearly adaptive. But I realized also that it comes with a really big problem, okay? So if I tell you, Owen, you tell me everything that's on your mind right now, okay? Jeez. Okay? 
And you're like, uh, I don't know that I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the, in other words, you have private access to your subjective thoughts. Okay? And those thoughts do not necessarily want, you don't want everyone to have equal access to everything that you think. Okay? Why? Because you share different interests with people. And, and what you know and why you do what you do. So the story I would tell is imagine you had two people, you know, on the hunter-gatherer plane, okay, and, you know, I'm paired, you know, with somebody, and somebody comes along to me and is like, and I notice they're spending time with my pair bond, okay, and I say, hey, why are you spending so much time with her? And imagine they turn to me, well, my, my goal is to separate the two of you and take her as my mate, okay? They don't say that, even though that might be their core. What they say is, hey, she's teaching me to plant seeds. I'm just hanging around. <laughs> right so you explain the behavior in a way that you know articulates some rationale for why you're doing it but you hide the behavior that's really dangerous to let go to share all right i mean i you know i was a classic i was learning about justification and i was running late with my wife um and then i hit traffic for like five minutes i was like 25 minutes late she was pissed i come in the door she's like why are you late i was like traffic you know, it was, you know, I was really screwing around doing theory stuff for 20 minutes. And then I had five minutes of traffic. She asked me, I didn't even think about it. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't say, well, I was actually thought the theory stuff was more interesting than your time. So I wasted 20 minutes of your time because I was interested in theory. And oh, by the way, there's five minutes of traffic. I didn't say that. Right. I said, oh, my God, I'm sorry, dear. So sorry. Traffic. Okay. And I, now I built this justification idea. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I just did that automatically. Okay. So. What does this mean? Well, basically what it means is language creates the problem of social justification, which includes how do you know your propositions are right? So now I can ask you questions about them. And even more presently, how do you legitimize your action in the social field, okay, to manage your social influence with others? All right, well now I actually then discovered the evolutionary processes that give rise to Freud's conception of the ego. Okay. In other words, Freud was right. We have a mental organ of justification that's regulating our bio, selfish biological, uh, biopsychological drives, and we have to conform to the social environment. But he had no idea why. The reason was the problem of language gave other people access to our thoughts, so we needed to build a justifier that explained what we were doing so we could have a narrative for other people that allowed us to get along and navigate the social environment. Okay. So it's a theory of human self-consciousness. And then, then it says the evolution of culture will be these systems of justification that legitimize, and everybody's then constantly navigating what is justifiable and what is not. And really the evolution of culture are these systems of justification that people build together to decide what is legitimate. Okay. So I then, I then had a theory that what was it really that turned us into, from primates into persons? The definition of a person who is somebody that operates on this person culture plane that justifies their actions on a social stage and is held accountable. Okay. In fact, that's what all our modern laws are. So, well, are they a real person? Are they able to be held competent and accountable? And then we're going to punish them if they are because they have self-conscious capacity to be a legitimate and responsible citizen. And if they fuck that up, we will punish them with the law. That's what the law is. It, once it determines you're a person, which is an entity that can justify itself on a social stage. Okay, and that's what differentiates us from the animals, all right? So, 
okay, so I hit this point and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna study this whole issue of justification. And for six months, I'm doing all of this organizing. And then, uh, and I'm seeing, so what I've, in terms of the problem of psychology, what I've seen very clearly now is, hey, you have, you have to cleave the line off very clearly between human and animal. I mean, that's not a new insight, but I could now see that insight. So psycho one of the reasons psychology is all effed up is because it doesn't do that. Well, I now have a line for doing that. Okay. So one day I'm sitting there, you know, fired it up, smoking some weed, all right? <clears throat> and, and then, boom, I have this unbelievable insight, okay? And I draw out a diagram of, of four upside-down cones, okay, that just fought, fell out of me. I mean, it just instantaneously just fell out of me. 30 seconds, I drew out this diagram. As an original picture of the diagram, I show people at some point there. Okay. And what does it look like? On the bottom, there's this matter. It's a cone of matter. Okay. And then out of that matter shoots life, a cone of life. All right. And then out of that shoots a cone of mind, in particular, the animal mind. And then the reason that I could see this cone is because I had found this cone between the animal mind and the emergence of human culture. And so on top of that is culture. All right. And when I saw that, I mean, my life changed. I was back in 1997. Okay. Um, and I've been obsessed with this basic formulation of the universe ever since. Okay. Why? Well, it turns out that what I did was I realized in that moment, that the universe operates at different frequencies of behavioral complexity. I'll say that again, it operates at different frequencies of behavioral complexity, okay? And that these different frequencies give rise to different dimensions of behavioral process. Different dimensions, what are they? Well, let's start at the beginning and then let's work our way up and then we'll be able to see this. Because then I realized I could put this on an evolutionary history. So let's go all the way back. Uh, what did they discover with the Big Bang? They rolled the thing all the way back and they realized that, that the entire physical dimension collapses into an, basically an energy singularity. So if we just run the time back, okay, we get, roll the film back to 13.78 billion years. Although there's a little debate now about the actual time. There's some interesting things that are happening there, but I don't need to get into the detailed physics of it. But anyway, we'll say 13.8 billion years. Okay, and how do they know that? Because there's a thing called cosmic microwave background radiation in particular, not to mention the distances between uh, various galaxies uh, and how they move in relationship to what's called redshift. Anyway, you can take basically a picture and that's how they know. And they then discover this thing called cosmic microwave background radiation, which tells you there's a basic point at which the universe has a beginning. Okay, and colloquially we call that the Big Bang. What's the Big Bang? It is the way in which this singularity, which is really a mathematical term, but I like to call it the pure energy singularity, okay, has a reaction in it, maybe from some other universe, God only knows, maybe from the finger of God, okay? Whatever it is, this is the edge of our empirical knowledge, our, our scientific natural empirical knowledge, and it just, boom, springs forth an internal reaction that starts a, an expansion process inside the inner, and it's basically, it's like a balloon that blows up, okay? That gives rise to space, time, and matter, all right? Matter is basically collections of frozen energy. And matter, antimatter particles form as the universe expands out of pure energy, okay? And so what you get is a jump. This is the first joint point from energy to matter. And you jump into the classic material dimension, 
okay? That a space-time energy and matter transformations happen in it, all right? And so then you have the explosion and the cosmic, it's called cosmic evolution of the material universe. And that's the, called the matter dimension. Now, many people think that that's just all there is and everything else is complex, but the tree of knowledge says no, okay? Because something, although you do see an evolution of complexity, you go from particles, you go from atoms, and then you go from molecules, right? Okay? So, and then molecules are these really complex entities, but they're still in the material dimension. All right, so then four billion years ago, okay, after a whole series of events on a little arm of the Milky Way, okay, of our particular galaxy, billions of galaxies, we get this really interesting emergence and nobody really knows exactly what the details of it is, but you know what I'm talking about. It's the emergence of life, okay? Now life is a, the, the life cone represents a fundamentally different dimension of behavioral complexity. Why, why? Well, what I learned over years and really studying this question is that life is a different kind of emergence and the reason is because life is organized by information processing and communication systems, okay? It's a self-organizing, dynamic, complex, adaptive system, which is tied together by information processing inside the cell in particular, you can figure it, you can describe it this way, and then communication between cells, okay? That give rise to what's called complex adaptive behaviors, all right? Uh, and now complexity science in the 20th century shows the difference between complicated behaviors, which is what material, the matter dimension was, and the jump in the, psycho, the, the cyclical dynamic process. Actually, I have a book right here, um, Stuart Kaufman book, okay, A World Beyond Physics. It's about, he's a biologist, and it's fundamentally about how the jump into life creates a new causal sequence, okay? It's a causal feedback loop that's not operative in the matter dimension. It's an example of strong emergence, okay? That's what the cone represented, all right? Because there's a dynamic complexity building feedback loop between natural selection, operating and genetic combinations that build these cellular systems. And they have information processing and communication, okay? And that actually is the unification biology centered around those ideas. That's really important. That happened 4 billion years ago. Well, then the tree of knowledge tells me, okay, that then there's another jump in complexity that happens when we go from life to mind. Now mind, I mean, what, I, what do I mean mind here? I mean by uh, animal behavior mediated by the nervous system. That's what I mean, okay? So I got fish over there, fish are swimming around, they have brains, they're moving around, they have perception. That's actually, I can see mind right there in my language. It takes a little practice to get used to, but just like I see the, the plants that are in there, they're alive, and the fish, they're mind, they're mental, okay? They're swimming around. How, what are, they have complex bodies, they're vertebrates, they have a brain, it's moving them around. Notice the relationship between the cell with its DNA, RNA, information processing, storage, and communication. Well, what is an animal but then that takes all those cells together by the nervous system and has an information processing system in the nervous system that ties all those cells together so that they move as whole units and they communicate with each other as other fish. Okay, so you get an information processing, all right, and it's a whole nother plane of existence, okay, just like life is a plane. So now you go matter, you go life, you go mind, okay, and then I had found the joint point. What is it then that, okay, what happens? What was I dealing with justification? We had minds, 
And what, what do we do? We started talking and we developed a complexity building feedback loop of justification. And that's what gave rise to culture. Okay. So each one of these, I don't know if you ever play, watch Star Trek or whatever, but Star Trek is, there's a scene where Spock, you know, Spock, super logical Spock, is playing four-dimensional chess. Okay. Well, that's basically what this is, that this argues is that each one of these jumps is another plane whereby there's a whole set of rules that are operating among cells, among animals, among people. Okay. And they're operating because of information processing communication systems that regulate them. Okay. So what that does, what does that mean? It means now that you have a way of understanding the evolution of complexity, okay? And the understanding of sciences in a way that fundamentally finally makes sense, which is unbelievable, okay? Because it's sort of like, all right, I can now match the evolution of complexity, matter, life, mind, culture, with the four big domains of science, which are physical sciences, biological sciences, the basic psychological sciences into the human sciences, human psychological, and then the social sciences like sociology and anthropology, okay? Those are the big four classes. So I had a theory of the scientific descriptions with the ontic reality, matter, life, mind, and culture, all right? Boom, that was really exciting, okay? Ooh. I wish right. I was there when you smoked that joint, man. But yeah, man, I wish you were. And I, <laughs> You know, it's been going on for 20 years on and off. And I was like, there it is. It's like, ah, you know, it's like, it's been trailing that sucker. And I, all of a sudden you get that insight and it's just, woo. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was one, it was one of those trans, I wrote about it with John Verveke and I did a blog series on called The 11th Problem of Consciousness um, because he was very interested in transformational experiences. All right. And he did a wonderful, in his meaning making series, he talks profoundly about why transformational experiences, whether they're religious experiences, meditative experience, psychedelically induced experiences, what they are and why do they have so much power, okay? And why we need to really appreciate and honor them, all right? Uh, and I, his, his analysis of what happened to, the, to you when you go through these is that your phenomenological self essentially uh, melts and gets disoriented, okay, by whatever mechanism of uh, either abstaining or meditation or drug use or whatever the hell you're doing, your phenomenology all of a sudden gets shaken, okay? And then in, that, in an unfreezing state, you go through this sort of transformational association. And then all of a sudden, you see the world in a different way. And that's why so many people experience, you know, uh, reliably, there are all these features. And he argued that you go through a transformation of self in your relationship with the world, and you get a do it different and more optimal intuitive grip on your sense of self in relationship to the universe. That's what these transformative experiences were. And that's exactly what happened to me. Mine was particularly unique, as we say in the blogs, because I also lined it up with logos. So logos is your scientific logic. So I had this vision of scientific logic as I was going through this phenomenological experience. Um, because as soon as I did it, then I started to harmonize my body and my experience across these different dimensions of complexity. Okay. So ever since I've been my, what is my physical? What is my biophysiological? What is my neuromental? And what is my self-conscious justification? Dimensions of complexity. And how are they interfacing with each other in a hierarchical nested hierarchy so that I can organize myself and how I can organize my understanding of what's going around around me? That's a fucking amazing ability because now you can actually organize all the frequencies, uh, scientifically derived frequencies of behavior in levels and dimensions in appropriate nest, which has been a big mystery. You know, like how does self-conscious causation relate to physical causation? 
Well, that's what this tells you. And, and so it provides a conceptually clear, coherent framework for that. Uh, Amazing, man. So, and it, and it then solved the fucking problem of psychology because it told you there's basic psychology that comes out of biology and that's the problem of animal behavior. And then there's human psychology, which serves as the base of the social sciences. And there are joint points between them, so you don't fuck them up. There's a totally different, there's a clear line. Uh, so then it says, yes, not only was there a problem, now the problem has resolved itself. It's the lines between life and mind. Uh, I mean, but yeah, between life and mind and mind and culture. And I built these joint points. I explained how they come. Behavioral investment theory is the joint point from life to mind. And then justification system series. So, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's light up another virtual joint for the listeners and hit the fifth joint point. Amen. That's where. Amen, brother. Right. So everybody, let's do this. Everybody, take a deep fucking breath. All right. Get centered. Okay. Let's get your physical, biophysiological, neuromental, and self-conscious justification systems aligned. You should be able to identify those if you turn your mind's eye. So one is the talking part of you. Once the phenomenological experience then into your nervous system, then that's into your biophysiological. Now you're a physical object, say, sitting in the chair, right? At a particular temperature, at a particular weight, all right? Feel those dimensions, okay. If you can feel those dimensions, now you're harmonizing across the dimensions. All right, now let's come back, and now let's think about where we are globally, okay? And I'll tell you, I think we're in the midst of a Kairos. Uh, you know, I was listening to Jordan Hall and John Verbeke and uh, I certainly, Zach Stein, all the futuristic people who are getting this shit, um, who I now honor and admire and learn so much from. Well, I knew that we were gonna be heading towards a Kairos since 1997, okay? Why? It falls out of the fucking uh, tree of knowledge. So it's just following, okay? So remember, you have matter and then there's a jump out of matter. Right? And what is it that's a jump out of matter? The jump out of matter is information processing communication systems, okay, that then get networked together and then create this new plane of existence we call life. Okay? Then, boom, nervous system yokes animals together. Okay? Now you get a new plane called mind. And then language yokes mind together to get a whole new plane and emergent dimension called culture, 50,000, starting 50,000 plus years ago. So, what does each one of them have in common? It's the emergence of a in novel information processing system, yoked together to create a, comp, uh, a communication network and a computational feedback control system. Okay, well look around at the 20th century, all right? You look around the 20th century, you simply ask, has there been an emergence of novel forms of information processing? Has there been an emergence of an internet connected system that yokes us together in a particular kind of way? And have we given rise to a different kind of information processing uh, mechanism? And the answer is, holy shit, we built these digital computers, okay? We built the internet, and now we're building all of this information interface, both between them, so we have human artificial intelligence, right? We have artificial computers competing with each other doing various shit. We have online learning, machine learning. We have built our technology, our, our what used to be dead technology, like a, like a stone tool, then became an information technology, and now we're networking all of it together and we're fusing them. Holy fucking shit. What that means is that we are right on the cusp of a transition, the digital transition. You know? And it starts with writing. If you really go back, it's the way we externalize our symbolic memory with writing. So it's actually been going on since then. 
And then we got printing, printing press, and then we got these algorithmic uh, uh, mechanical algorithmic systems, then we got these electronic algorithmic systems, and then we discovered logic of algorithms, computed all together electronically, and boom, you know, that's what we did in the 21st century, okay? So the fifth joint point is the transition, all right, between culture into metaculture and the digital landscape, all right? <sighs> deep breath. <laughs> Fucking deep breath, man. You know, go back to me in 1997. It was like, oh, this thing popped out of me. It's like, oh my God, this thing's coming. You know, I was like, when is this happening? All right. And it's like, it's going to happen in the 21st century. That's what it tells me. Okay. And at what level? Um, uh, so, so essentially, now what you get is this whole idea. You can look around for it and actually find that it's happening. All right. There's a thing called the singularity. All right. People have been wondering what the fuck the singularity is. Well, the fifth joint point tells you it's a psychosocial tech fusion point. That's essentially what we're headed towards. Okay, um, and there's unbelievable mathematic. There's an un, uh, there's an unbelievable mathematical analysis of unbelievable precision from a Russian and an American data set that says that we are crossing the singularity in 2028. Okay, I said I mean I just makes me when I learned that I was. Like, you know, we got eight years to build this. It's like a spaceship to the future. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so I use that as magic. I, I have that as my magic psychosocial technical dream, okay, that represents the fifth joint point. So what does it mean? What does it mean? It means, frankly, what it means is that we need, and Jordan Hall and John Berbeke get this, we need a meadow psycho technology, okay, a religion that's not a religion that allows us to organize our belief with wisdom understand our nature, okay, so our fundamental nature, like our need to be known and valued, our need to connect, okay, how do we process the emotions that wound us, super fucking crucial, we need to understand that, we need to embed ourselves in powerful, meaningful relationships in nature, okay, and we need to relate to nature, that is our, that's the soil we come from, okay? and then we need to do it in a way that transitions and harmonizes with the digital, because that's common, so that's the issue, how do we take self? How do we take relationships? How do we embed it in nature and create a digital landscape that's wise? That's what it says. That's what we need. That's, that's the fucking challenge. Okay. And you actually, how, how the fuck do you do that? And the answer is nobody knows. The people that say we don't know what we're doing and we need to take the time to sense make, they know what we're ta they're talking about. Anybody that says, oh, we know what you're doing, because it's all an unprestatable future. That's actually what, uh, what Kaufman says about biology. Once you get these feedback loops, it explodes in all these different ways. So this, we, no one knows what the 21st century is gonna look like, but the tree of knowledge tells you the form, the outside form that is gonna happen, and the features, okay? So can't specify, the specification has gotta be emerging. Each one of us has gotta be a participatory role and engage in the here and now, dialogos and real participation, what is adaptive, for us and how does that emerge in all the complex dynamic feedback loops? But there are principles, and if we learn these principles, and if we find them and they actually, and everyone agrees that they're a particular truth, then we'll be able to hone in on them and we'll be able to carve our purpose toward the good, okay? If we don't do that, well, you know, we've been punched in the face by this pandemic, man. There's a lot of vulnerabilities. There's a lot of stacked vulnerabilities our culture has. It's old and it's tired and it's confused and it doesn't have a lot of time. So we, you know, we got work to do, no fucking doubt. 
Well, I guess that's one of the things that's been exposed at the pandemic is how the complexity has just been ramping up and ramping up and our, our ways of transferring information, our cell phones, our computers are not the, the newspapers and the TVs of the 20th century. And so everything is flying around so much faster, which <laughs> is the movement towards that fifth joint point. That point I think that's like, right. It's that, that's right. But it's, it's, I, I should also be very clear that, that it's also, it's also inducing an enormous amount of vulnerable chaos. So any, every one of these transition periods is associated with a lot of vulnerability. So it's a very, you have to winnow. So there's order and chaos and there's always a dialectic to achieve complexity. There's always the dialectic between order and chaos. So we are threading a needle here and there's absolutely, man, somebody pushes a bomb, the whole culture line that's been evolving for 50,000 years blows off the top of the tree of knowledge. There's nothing that guarantees it. And quite frankly, the, as the acceleration happens, and the variability happens before we've actually laid the groundwork, that's when we're most vulnerable, which is exactly where we're right now. We're, we've laid enough of the groundwork so all the transitions are happening and all the chaos has been, but we haven't structured in a way that has the stabilizing features and relation. That's why everything's going haywire. And everybody's like, oh, Jesus, we're right in the middle of something. We don't know what's happening. And we don't, and we haven't built it yet, yet there's a lot of change that is happening. And we built enough of it so the old systems, the old blue church systems, they're not up to the task. They're just, they're ancient, you know, and the old mindsets of the old white men that run them are ancient and they don't know how to adjust. And they're trying to hold and use the old formulas to try to maintain control as this new thing's trying to blow up. And it's got all of these unpredictable, unpredictable complexities to it. And uh, so you interact that globally, good luck, man. As we burn through the resources of the environment and we get all confused and then we get all defensive and we're, and the psychologists have screwed us up because they haven't taught us what we actually are and what we need because they're all empirically broken. It's an, it's a, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> resources we can get to get this thing right and thread the needle between order and chaos and build the fifth dimension in a way that actually fosters sustainable flourishing. That's, that's what I'm, that's fundamentally what I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, one of the points I find myself thinking through is we've got the tech for that jump, or at least the prototypes of the tech for it. But we may not have the nervous systems yet, or at least the way of internetworking our nervous systems in order to process it. It's like all this news coming in a month ago from how awful the coronavirus was all around the world. It's so fucking easy to just get stuck on a news feed and go, douche, 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 for an hour, for two, and scramble Absolutely. everything. And then it's like, what the fuck do I do with that? No, totally. We, and we, we, we have no idea how to calculate, okay, um, what it is that we ought to be calculating because everything is different. I make the point, so um, I found out this interesting historical fact to give you a frame about calculation, okay? Um, so one of the questions, for example, is how much should we shut down and what is, we, nobody knows what this economic wave that the shutdown wave will then result in, okay? In other words, do we have the resources to manage this? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll figure out a way to adjust. We'll eliminate a lot of non-central stuff. Maybe we'll harmonize with the, you know, with the, the earth a lot better because our CO2 per will go down. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe it's just going to be an absolute nightmare as the, as the tension builds around oil companies, as the, ten, as the lack of exchange between countries happens, as more and more people get economically pressed and depressed, as the environmental process still continues to happen, as we get less efficient, as we get more defensive, and then everyone goes nationalistic and defensive and, and kills everybody. I mean, that's, that's the other problem. And we have all these weapons that can enable us to do it. So every one of these is, each one of those is a, is a nightmare, okay? 
But what, what we want to be able to do, uh, you know, in relationship to, we have to, we have to understand where the wisdom is, okay, that allows us, and, and we have to learn that very, very quickly. That's why all the seers are catching the ecology of practices, okay, that allow us to understand what the values are and allow us to try to build a kind of transition from the old blue church systems to the digital world in a way that doesn't result in the entire system toppling. You know, you used the word religion when you were talking about that fifth joint point a few moments ago. Yep. I think it's crucial to bring that in here because I, well, I think regardless of not of the epistemological validity of religion, whether or not there is actually a God in the sky or not, who knows, but I believe we are religious beings. Funny, I said, Amen. I believe. Right? And what, I mean, the, the Latin meaning of the word is actually something like that which binds us together. Exactly, it is. Religio, Perveki, I love it. Okay. Um, yeah. Every so, so is religion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I like Alexander Bard's synthesis. Okay. He talks about uh, God, creating God in the internet age. And I actually have a metaphor called the elephant sun God, uh, which is basically the connection of the digital with this is the absolute spirit, Hegelian spirit of the absolute good, Paul Tillich's notion of the absolute concern, the stuff that is above us and better than us. Okay. That calls our spirit to the ultimate concern to be that which is ethical and moral, which all but the psychopaths among us have a very clear intuition about. Okay. That the translate that's metacultural, meaning that it's cross cultures. Um, and in fact, I have a value claim that's a metacultural value claim. Uh, that organizes my actions. It's called B, B, that which enhances, oriented toward and becoming, dignity and well-being with integrity. Okay. So B, that which enhances dignity and well-being with integrity. And what those fundamentally are, are that's, those are orienting wisdom values. Okay. And, and, I, and now other values from religious perspectives and things like that would be you know, love, and freedom, okay, uh, whatever it is, these are belief value systems that bind us and give us meaning. Um, there's a wonderful theory about the evolution of, of agriculture, by the way, by Aslan, uh, called, uh, you know, the title of the book is God, A Human History. So he upends agriculture in a particular way and says what drove the evolution of agriculture from his perspective is the construction of temples, okay? In other words, agriculture actually in the early stages, agriculture sucked as a way of getting calories. All right, the, the, you wouldn't believe how tough it was. It's not like they had big apple trees. You know, they're building, they're growing shit, and you know all the modern stuff that we have. It was ten times worse back then. And the labor and the food, you didn't. So they know that the people who were doing agriculture had lived really hard lives relative to the hunter gatherers, nomads, and um, and horticulture. So the question is, why were people doing it? Well, he argued that was actually going on is more and more temples were being built. More and more religious temples were being built. Okay. And it was the drive to do that. By the way, the justification hypothesis and systems theory tells you exactly why. Because what it says is we can ask questions and then the question why then becomes an ultimate cognitive quest. Why? Build your meaning system so that you can orient yourself. So you said when you think we're religious beings, I don't believe that. And the idea of orienting our logos with our phenomenology is unbelievably basic. You know, you have a dream, you got to get up. What the hell does this mean? People have been asking that for hundreds of years. Look at the cave drawings. So they start building 
these temples. That means that the concept of God is what drove the original civilization move. Well, shit, if that doesn't mean religious beings, I know, if the essence of civilization was the drive to build temples so that we could pray to the concept of God so that we came together and had a sense of belonging, meaning, and purpose. This, by the way, is why the modern scientific thing is such a disaster if you just interpret it as, oh, all we are is matter in motion. It's just the material dimension. It's a material flatland. What Ken Wilber calls it brilliantly. It's a fucking material flatland, which means life, mind, and matter aren't, uh, and culture, life, mind, and culture aren't real. It all just reduces to the physical. No, it's fundamentally wrong. There's a cultural dimension of complexity. It's our system of justification. Yeah, right. And without it, we just gut our entire justification system. We just, you know, right. I, I was just talking to a kid not too long ago, came back from school. This was a year before the coronavirus, but it was over the summer. He went for, you know, I was like, so what did you learn in college? He's like, uh, basically, I'm just a bunch of chemicals. So he took these, he took these philosophical, he took a philosophical and a neuroscience class. And it sort of is like, actually, my love is just about oxytocin and it's just matter bumping and I'm just a complicated chunk of meat. That's what he learned. That's what, we, that's what his parents paid $25,000 so that he could come back and basically be like, well, all the things I thought were important is just a bunch of bullshit and really it matters is ads. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's like, you, you just destroyed somebody. You, it's the anti-religion. I mean, it's like, it just kills your soul and spirit. And, and it's completely wrong. I mean, it's just completely wrong. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a real, we have to, we, that's one of, that's, we have to jettison that. So we talk about religion we have a couple of issues. We have to find what the meaning making system is and get it right. Okay. And then we have to understand how to align it with the modern science understanding. That's why, by the way, I call it the tree of knowledge. Okay. So again, you know, obviously that's a reference and the thing behind me is an extension of that with a tree and a garden. Okay. So needless to say, if you don't have to go to Sunday school very long and understand that I'm making connections here with our mythos, with at least the Western, um, Judeo-Christian Islamic mythos and, and, and the tree and what does it mean? And fundamentally, if you watch a lot of Jordan Peterson, he says a beautiful analysis of Genesis, okay? And the idea is we became self-conscious and then we were naked and we had to justify, by the way, if you see, you can see that in, in his analysis. In other words, a self-conscious awakening and then we were vulnerable and potentially ashamed and then we had to legitimize ourselves, okay? And we had eaten off the tree of knowledge. We then knew what was good and evil, okay? Well, ultimately, the tree of knowledge is that we got to come back scientifically and understand what paradise was that we lost through self-consciousness, okay, and reclaim it. And that's the Christ redemption story, ultimately, okay? It's a reclamation, all right, and redemption of being aware and then returning ultimately to the garden through the tree of knowledge. I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate mythos that I try to tell with my little story. Mm, you know, one of the worries I'm having at the moment is based on this idea that we are religious beings and in times I think of crisis and, and problems like where we're at the moment, but also just the uncertainty that's been going on the last 20 years. I think it triggers that need for a religious connection. I think it's exactly the same thing that happened in the early mid 20th century and why we got something like Nazi Germany because Hitler and the Nazis is a fucking religious That's phenomenon. Right. You don't look at that as politics. That's, he is a fucking priest, a dark priest standing up and uniting people around their pain and their frustration. And 
living in a society that pretends it's not religious because that's what we do we just have nation states which are kind of religious phenomenons and i think the late 20th century did a kind of good good job at displacing that drive into consumption wealth accumulation status accumulation but it was also hollow and it's why we've got such a mental health fucking crisis now right because the cracks are starting to show two or three generations in i think there's a lot of people millennials and younger that we're like well this the stories we've been told about this world aren't particularly exciting or energizing yep and it it kind of they're both they're empty and inadequate which is hard (laughs) empty and inadequate is not you know it's like (laughs) go ahead yeah and of course the issue is that if we start to then seek religion um there isn't a religion that is aligned towards the good that maximizes i forget what you said but integrity justice whatever the ones were <laughs> right there are lots of different ways to frame that the nearest the nearest thing will do and i think that's what's going on with these online echo chambers that begin to form now they're mm-hmm. fundamentally quasi-religious phenomenon it's like that's right the biggest that's right. people are looking for the church they're looking for the priests and churches absolutely and they come around together and they close borders around them and then they have a truth and then they it's just this is art whether the truth is free speech absolutism or mm-hmm. or like the me too movement or whatever and this isn't say everybody who believes in these ideas is getting into a cult but there is a tendency to form cults around the culture the guy patrick ryan who you may have heard of he's a very interesting guy but he writes a blog called cult state cult state mm. and i think his thesis is precisely that we are moving towards these cults and but then he also throws AI into the mix and thinks, what if these priestly cult leaders begin to use the tech that allows you to target the people who would be the most valuable audience members, kind of like the Cambridge Analytica guys did with Trump, but just distributed and decentralized. Absolutely. Yeah. That can get up unless there's something. It's unbelievable. Right, right, right. So, and that's exactly the danger. Okay. When I read 1984, Orwell's 1984, you know, I don't know what that was, 1990 or whatever. Um, I was super impressed. You know, it's a very, very powerful story. Um, but I remember reading it and going, yeah, but you really can't do that. You can't go back and you can't reauthor everything. Could you imagine what it'd be like to try to gather up real newspapers and rewrite them and then redistribute them of 10 years ago? Actually, once newspapers are out, granted, he said he had a totalitarian state, but I always remember being like, even a totalitarian state would struggle with that fucking problem, okay? Well, now, if everything is mediated by the internet and you can build, okay, and you had control over that, it's the perfect 1984 scenario. The internet is the perfect 1984 scenario, okay? So, you know, my naivete saying, ah, this didn't happen because it really would be too hard to do in physical materials storage, turns out, but if it's digital storage and I can, and you become an enemy of the state and I just have a, I'll just make a video of you molesting a child and distribute it to everybody, right? Because I don't need to have the real video, but as long as I have believing people who are monitored constantly, right? Who can then be fed any piece of information and then you update the information anywhere you want because you have a centralized data control system. 1984 is really a a problem when it comes to the internet. They actually can do that if we get it wrong. So this is what I mean by coming through a, a very thin hole between chaos on the one hand and then people learning how to utilize this to control people, utilizing the digital landscape and controlling people, fusing with artificial intelligence to create authoritarian systems because people are all you know, defensive. And we believe me, I know human nature. People seek power, 
you know, huge, especially, you know, the antisocial uh, psychopath people, uh, they want absolute power. They want to make people defensive and then create the authoritarian tribal instinct and then tell them that there'll be a demigod. This is what Hitler does. And then all of a sudden you swarm all the people that are vulnerable. And then once you get a herd mentality, uh, you basically have to go down, you get trained. It's a, it's a nightmare. It's a really, really, and we're absolutely at a place uh, where we can start drifting. We already are starting to drift in that territory. So the chaos of confusion versus the need for authoritarian order uh, is, is these are the extremes that we're going to have. We have the threat. And that's why it's so important to be clear about our wisdom principles um, to prevent either one of those from happening. Mm. I think if let's try and bring this back more to a, to a final message of like optimism or at least yep. what can be done. Like where, what are the things to be working on? From where right. you're standing. Yeah. Right. I listen, I'm, I, I, I think we're at a Kairos moment. Okay. And in a Kairos moment, the, I think the appropriate realistic stance is very high optimism and a lot of pessimism. And that's how I feel. So my heart gets torn because I can see a wide variety of different possible outcomes, some quite horrifying and some quite beautiful. And I believe, so what I would say to any audience members, this is a very important time, okay? And, and believe me, this is actually a spiritual time. If there, for me, if there ever was a spiritual time, because actually what we're literally talking about is a transition into a higher metacultural state in the next century. I mean, what could, in a scientific way, I mean, what could be more sort of like mind-blowing than that? So there really is a way to anchor yourself scientifically. Remember we did the calm thing? Was well, like, how do I become a digit in the digital landscape in a way that fosters the move toward the good? I mean, that's a, that's a very clear spiritual calling. Me, that's the elephant sun god alignment that I have. So I try to align my spirit. And when I say I'm going to be that which enhances dignity and well-being, and I see people wanting that. And I see people doing that. I really do. I see people craving it. I see people talking about it in their own language, but very similar terms. I see people gathering together. I see people longing for it. And quite frankly, you know, I see people generally as very, very good. Okay. You know, we talk like for the United States, well, we elected Trump and, you know, and I'm a critic of all of that. But I was a, uh, I was the psychological consultant for this international education of teachers program at James Madison University, where they would bring in 15 people from around the world and I would serve as their psychological consultant. So I would meet with them every other week and then do, if they had therapy needs, I would meet those. It's fascinating. So you get people from Morocco, China, India, and Brazil, and everywhere you could possibly imagine around the world. Okay, I did it for three years. And do you know what I found? And they come to Harrisonburg, Virginia. You know, so us enlightened people, oh, Harrisonburg, you know, a bunch of Trump supporters, whatever. And these, all these people from all around the world. And after they left three years in a row, you know what I heard? I said, what did you think about us? You guys are so nice and welcoming. That's what we heard. Okay. So to Harrisonburg, Virginia, the message from people around the world is you guys are super nice and welcoming. You're so much more kind and caring and less prejudicial than I would have ever guessed. That's what they all said, okay? So I'm like, damn, you know? You know, let's, you know, there's a lot more niceness and kindness out there. And 95% of the people want to be that. They'd so much rather be that. They, they, all, almost all the hate, and you identified, almost all the hate comes out of fear and vulnerability. A few bad apples lead it because they're sociopaths and antisocials. But then it drives 90% of the people following them are done out of fear 
and, and there's needs for social influence and connection and they feel like their tribe is about to be threatened and they have to react. That's what drives it all. The vast majority of people under normal circumstances were one of the most giving and caring species, okay? And, and that's what we need to cultivate. People want to move towards dignity, well-being, and integrity. Everybody does. So the question is we have to believe in that. We have to tap that. We have to create cultures for that, you know? And if we do that, you know, uh, we can move towards the sun god. We can move towards, no, no, we can. And we can build a different thing where our relational value, our needs to be known and valued, our understanding of the world, our harmony with nature, that can come online. And we can move towards something fundamentally better in the 21st century. I believe that. It's the old story, eh? Yep. Amen. It's an old story. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a cyclical process. You know, allow all the wisdom traditions see our life, of course, is, is these echoing systems of spirals through time. And that's that's absolutely true. Right. It just feels like a good place to wrap up. Amen. Right. Good. good. We'll end it on the cycle of time. Mm-hmm. That's a place to end up. And let's make a join together sometime, brother. Yeah, man. I look forward to it. Uh, it's a great. <laughs> Great conversation. I appreciate all your your questions, and I'm glad to be able to share some. Hello, people, once again. And if you made it this far, well done. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you like what we're doing, then please consider supporting us on YouTube and on your podcast app, sharing the content round and talking to people about it. And also consider giving us a donation on patreon.com forward slash technosocial so we can keep growing the show. Ciao.